Father in heaven, it's good to be here. It's good to be around committed people that want to serve you. So we just pray. This is an important topic area as we're looking at science and faith and creation. You know the uh, struggles that your people are facing at this time over some of these issues. Issues that should be, shouldn't even be questioned and yet people are struggling with some of these things. But may we be fortified so when we face some of these issues we will always be strong and faithful to you no matter what. Bless each person here. Be with us as we look into your counsel from the scriptures and the spirit of prophecy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. Again, going back. So I entitled them, them that, them that honor me, I will honor. And up the top here, I have again, Daniel 1, where Daniel purposed in his heart. If, if you go away from this conference and, and don't remember a lot, if you just remember that phrase, Daniel purposed in his heart and what that means. Let's go back to Patriarchs and Prophets, page 50 and 51. We're going to talk a little bit about science. I'm a scientist. We're going to talk a little bit about science. Where did our first parents, what sort, what sort of science did they study? And it's quite revealing. It says, science in the beginning here is what I've enabled, what I entitled this. And it says here, the holy pair were not only children under their fatherly, the fatherly care of God, but students receiving instruction from the all-wise creator. Isn't that amazing? They, they, they learned from God. It says, they were visited by angels and were granted communion with their maker with no obscuring veil between. Imagine sitting down with Jesus and being able to ask him about molecular genetic things, you know, and it, wouldn't that be amazing? They were full of vigor and parted by the tree of life and their intellectual power but was but little less than that of the angels. It says, the mysteries of the visible universe, the wondrous works of him which is perfect in knowledge, she's quoting from Job 37, 16, afforded them an exhaustless source of instruction and delight. The laws and operation of nature which have engaged men's study for 6,000 years were opened to their minds by the infinite framer and upholder of all. Now, I've underlined a number of topic areas where this quote tells us that they studied. Listen to this and see if you can spot them. They held converse with leaf and flower and tree. Botany, gathering from each the secrets of its life. With every living creature, zoology, I was trained in zoology, from the mighty Leviathan that playeth amongst, among the waters, that's marine mammalogy, marine biology, to the insect moat that floats in the sunbeam, entomology. Adam was familiar. He had given to each its name, and he was acquainted with the nature and habits of all. That's ecology. He was an ecologist. Adam was the first ecologist. I'm a marine ecologist. God's glory in the heavens. Astronomy. They studied astronomy. Then innumerable worlds in their orderly revolutions. And again, looking at our solar system and, and space science. She quotes Job 37, 16, the balancing of the clouds. They studied weather. The weather, the water cycle, the water cycle in the world in the world. How about this one? The mystery of the mysteries of light and sound. They even studied physics. Adam and Eve. 
of day and night. Okay, so you know, meteorology, what's going on in the world? All were open to the study of our first parents, of every leaf of the forest, back to uh, uh, forest ecology. How about this one? Or stone of the mountains. Geology, they even studied geology. In every shining star, back to the space. In earth and air and sky, meteorology. They studied meteorology. God's name was written. The order and harmony of creation, again, looking at ecosystem studies and what's going on in their ecosystem, spoke to them of the infinite wisdom and power. They were ever discovering some attraction that filled their hearts with deeper love and called forth fresh expressions of gratitude. Isn't that amazing? They studied all those branches of science there with the angels and their creator back at the beginning. We too can be science students of science and creation today, and that's why we're here. But it all is about allegiance and who our allegiance belongs to. And 2 Samuel 2.30 tells us that them that honor me, I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Now let's talk about the scientific method. If you came to Weimar you, and you wanted to be a pre-med or a health graduate, you could come to my Foundations of Biology class. And uh, it's kind of a new experience as a researcher uh, and teaching biology now. So I pulled this right out of my lecture note. If you came here on the 20th of August or soon after when we had our first lecture, this is what we'll go over, what science is what the scientific process is. If the, um, if the air conditioner up the back is bothering you, you can switch that one off. It's just up to you. It's rattling a little bit, and that can be switched off because the other one is running. There's a panel that opens up. Let's consider the scientific method, biology 101. What is science? What is, if you do science, what do you do? There's five steps in science. Thanks, Dr. Jensen. Number one. Observations are made regarding natural phenomena. You make observations. You can, there's a panel that just, the left panel I think opens up. Yeah, one of those panels open up. If you go, that one there, there it is. Observations are made regarding natural phenomena. Number two, these, these observations lead to a hypothesis that tries to explain the phenomena. <laughs> a, useful, a useful hypothesis is one that is testable because it makes specific Predictions, okay. Number one, you make observations. Number two, that leads to a hypothesis. Number three, experimentation is conducted to determine if the predictions are correct. Number four, the data from the experiment are analyzed. And number five, the hypothesis is accepted or rejected. So you may have a... You may have a hypothesis that day length is influencing uh, the leaves dropping in the fall. Uh, that, that's something like that is in our textbook. And you can set up an experiment and manipulate day length and see. You can, you can have a control and a test and so forth and conduct an experiment. And you can test that hypothesis. Science proves nothing. This is kind of a, a, a fundamental theme of science. Science proves nothing. You can only accept or reject a hypothesis. You form a hypothesis and you conduct an experiment and based on that experiment and, or, or observation of the data 
anal analyzing things, you accept or reject a hypothesis. In fact, that's not even, if you're a real purist, you fail to accept the hypothesis. I think that's like, you know, depending on how pure you want to be about that, you, you accept it or you fail to accept it. Because maybe you didn't really, maybe your experiment doesn't reject it, but it just fails to accept it. So that's science. You know, you do these experiments, you do observation, and you carry out the scientific method. Now, often when it comes to evolution, we're dealing in the re realm of speculation. I'll, I'll, I'll share some of my experiences. And really much of evolution is a mindset among scientists. It's a mindset. And um, they're indoctrinated in this. You know, if you don't want to believe in God, what other option do you have, you know, but to believe in evolution? Let me give you one example. Those of you that may be in school or may be in secular universities or may have textbooks, we even use a textbook that has the information we need, but every now and then, you know, we've got to deal with, let's look at what it's saying. And that's fine. We're happy to hit it head on here at Weimar. Brooker, in the, in the biology book, Biology by Brooker et al. They talk about this theory of endosymbiosis. I'm just going to use an example. I did this with our students this year. Endosymbiosis. It's a theory, when, they, when people look at the cell, they look at the organelles, the different parts of the cell, and there's two organelles that sort of are, are quite unique, and that's the mitochondrion, and in plant cells, they're chloroplasts. And they call these semi-autonomous organelles, and because they kind of do their own thing in the cell, they have a little bit of genetic material of their own. And they come up with this theory called endosymbiosis. Let me just quote from the textbook. I mean, it's like it's a really far-fetched theory. Let me just quote. This is a direct quote from Brooker et al. Researchers discovered that genes in mitochondria and chloroplasts are very similar to bacterial genes. Likewise, and I quote, Mitochondria and chloroplasts are strikingly similar in size and shape to certain bacterial species. These observations provided strong support for the endosymbiosis theory, which proposes that mitochondria and chloroplasts originated from bacteria that took up residence within a, primor a primordial eukaryotic cell. So, Bacteria are prokaryotes. They're, they're, they're much, uh, they don't have the complexity that eukaryotic cells with all the organelles and everything. So they're saying some primitive eukaryotic cell kind of incorporated these ancient bacteria. Then they go on to say, over the next two billion years, the characteristics of the intracellular bacterial cell gradually changed to those of a mitochondrion or chloroplast. Now, Quite honestly, that is an incredibly far-fetched statement. I mean, that is just way out. And that is being promoted as mainstream science. They're saying that if you look at a cell, you have these mitochondria and chloroplasts, that some way, way back two billion years ago, they got sort of sucked into the cell, and over time, they kind of became part of the cell. There's absolutely no proposed mechanism for that, how that happened. There's, you know, it's just, it's, it's quite incredible. I gave our students an assignment. Okay, 
tell me what endosymbiosis is and how would you refute it as a Christian? And if you want to find some good information, I actually, there's actually information on Answers in Genesis website and there's something on endosymbiosis. The problem with, you know, the problem with evolutionary theory is they make these sweeping statements, they throw a whole, I don't know what they were basing the two billion years on, throw all this evidence at it and said, well, over time, this is what happened. Now, there are incredible biochemical pathways, let's think of the mitochondria, between the mitochondria and what goes on inside the cell. It's not just sitting there in the cell. And it's integrated with the whole process of cell communication, what's going on, there's pathways going on. It's an incredible complex process. So be alert, be aware, you read things like this and you say, wait a minute, okay, this is a sweeping statement. Is this based on the scientific method? I, well, you know, they, they go and they look at the genes and they can do experiments and learn about it, but to make this statement is pretty far-fetched. Honestly, it is, it's wild. It, at the beginning of this section, uh, that was in Brooker et al, page 121, a, a page or so before that, uh, it says, when they were introducing this, as we will examine, listen to what they say, as we will examine in this section, the seemingly mysterious behavior of these organelles, and that's you know, mysterious behavior, can be traced through their evolutionary origin about two billion years ago. They just say it. Uh, they don't e there they don't even suggest, at least when they went and said something, they kind of said it's based on a theory. They just come out and say the mysterious thing is based on their evolutionary history two billion years ago. You know, I don't accept that. That's a sweeping statement. That's not an example of good science. So be aware to be on guard to spot this sort of thing when it jumps out at you. As I mentioned earlier, we were talking about if you're a scientist working in a, in a, in a university, what are the things that they really, if you're gonna get a job, they want scientific publications that you're a recognized international scientist. Because if you do that, you, you have a better chance of bringing in the important research funds, uh, which helps fund the university and then you supervise graduate students, unless, and, and one of the minor ones, and they may consider your teaching experience. But really, they want the money, they want the publications, uh, and, uh, and you know, if, if you can bring students in, that brings money in. And then if you're a teacher, so actually, there's a lot of uh, high-profile scientists working in universities that often aren't very good teachers, because they're often not hired on their teaching ability. That's just an aside. Now, I've published a lot in my career in my field of marine biology. I've collaborated with a lot of scientists in, make, in, in writing publications. I've done research papers. I've done review papers. I've edited special uh, issues, brought in special journal issues. Uh, and so I, I've worked with the publication field a lot in the realm of science. How does it happen to get things published in science? Let's just look carefully at what it is. When you submit a paper, you do, this, you do your science, you do your research, you do your analysis, you put it into a research paper, which my students here do it at Weimar, uh, in the real realm of research, you then submit that to a publication, and it gets peer-reviewed. Now, for that, before that ever gets published or becomes part of mainstream science, it's peer-reviewed by most of the time between two and five referees. Often it's about three. Peer, they send it off to people that review it, and then it gets published. And that's all it really takes to get something published in the scientific world. If your referees agree with you, and they're on side, 
you're home free. I mean, that, you know, things are looking pretty good. In my research, and I'll talk a little bit about it, with the squid biology and the life cycles, I was based in Australia. The Canadians and the Americans loved my research. And I was publishing in US journals, in Canadian journals, because they were on side. They were excited about it. Other parts of the world, in Australia, they were skeptics. I just stayed away from Australian journals. Besides, I wanted to go to more higher profile international journals. But I, there were colleagues there that just were very skeptical. And they would slam the reviews if I, if I submitted things to Australian journals. I kind of knew who the people were. And, and that's just the way it is. There's a lot of bias in the scientific world. If you're publishing something controversial, it's tough to get it published. It's not easy to get it published. One of the things evolutionists accuse of creationists is that, well, you know, how much of that stuff is out there in the scientific publications? Well, it's no wonder if 98% of the scientific world are supporting a belief that is diametrically opposed to where you stand. It's no wonder there's very little of it getting out in the scientific literature. That, that isn't surprising. Uh, and I can remember um, Robert Gentry, you know, in his book, Creation's Tiny Mysteries. Uh, yeah, Creation's. That's it, yeah, tiny mysteries. He actually had to very carefully, when he published that, be very careful how he said it to get it out. I remember reading that many years ago. So it's kind of a boys club. It really is. You know, you have your colleagues. Your, I could write a paper dealing with uh, you know, evolutionary things, and I think I could get it published. Because I think I know enough how they think. I could write the things they want to hear, and I could probably get it published. In fact. I think of a, a research project I did one time ago, early in my career, collaborated with somebody at James Cook. This guy, was a, he was a nice guy, brilliant computer modeler type of a guy. And, uh, but he was a staunch evolutionist. I mean, but you know, nothing ever stopped me. I, in fact, I was often attracted to, to difficult people. I mean, he was a nice guy. And, and, I, and this guy had skills that I needed. And we, we took some of my data on squid growth. In fact, it was somebody else's data that they published that they analyzed it wrong. And this guy had the skills and the ability to reanalyze this growth, size at age growth data for squid and reanalyze it and come up with a completely different conclusion to how the asymptotic growth, that they, they had fitted a different type of curve. And we thought, no, that's not right. When you look at the data, we reanalyzed it. And this guy did a great job, brilliant guy. And the great, my great success in science is actually collaborating with expert people that know how to do things. And, and you don't have to know yourself. It's, you've got to connect with the person that can do it. Collaboration is a great thing. And we, we worked up this paper. I mean, it was, it was a nice piece of work. It, it reanalyzed some data. It took the science in a different direction, saying, no, this isn't correct if you look at it this way. And it was based on squid growth. We looked at squid growth was what I, what I worked on. I'll revisit that in a minute. So, uh, and he did this, and this guy was getting quite excited because when you look at the techniques that I spent many years studying, squid growth is, is essentially like exponential. It just goes up, and they have a very short lifespan. Whereas fish have what they call an asymptotic growth curve. It, it, they have an initial uh, fat, and people have the same growth curve, and then it sort of it levels off. So they got an S-shaped curve. You know, they kind of reach a maximum size and they stop. Squid don't do that. They just grow extremely fast and they just go up and, and die. Uh, and uh, this guy was thinking, you know what? What we've come up with here is uh, 
if we look at the fossil record, I've got some in my office, the ammonites and so forth of, of cephalopods that are fossil. Uh, Nautilus is a living representative of, of their many fossil forms of cephalopods, you know, squids and cuttlefish and octopus that lived in shells. The evolutionary theory is that, well, these things were swimming around with these shells and over the course of evolutionary time, they kind of lost their shell and they swam around like a squid and they have short lifespans and they have this whole spun out story. And he saw our data and he thought, you know, it would be great if we could just speculate a little bit. You know, he's had the data. He had the data. And he said, you know, when you see this life, this curve that just does that, what it made him think of, if you look at a Nautilus, a living representative, you know, Nautilus are very slow growing. They grow slowly and they sort of have that S-shaped growth curve. In his mind, he was seeing that, well, squids are just kind of the remnant of, they only have the first part of the growth curve. You know, over evolutionary time, they lost their shell and, and they started growing faster. And so he wanted to sort of speculate and he, he you know, came up with a great story, you know. Well, these are the modern representatives of an ancient class that they chop off that part of their growth curve and they're only left with this and they don't have their shell anymore. You know, we could, we could have spun a great, and I started that great, you know, early in my career and this guy's getting carried away with my data. And what are we gonna do? Anyway, you know, I sort of said to him, you know, I don't, you know, I don't really wanna go there, you know. I, I, anyway, I think he kind of understood where I was coming from. It probably wasn't as direct in my early Early days as I would be now. And, and we were able to, to leave that alone and we just published the data and interpreted the data in the scientific paper in terms of modern squid growth. And it was a great paper published in a very high ranking journal because this guy was so brilliant he could do wonderful things with the data. And, but the point is he was just ready to get excited and spin this story about what this data represents based on pure speculation. I mean, we have a fossil record showing that there are things in the fossil record. He wanted to connect all these pieces together and come up with a story, which they would have eaten it up in the scientific, I mean, they would have loved it. They would have really, it would have been, it would have been, it would have gone through the review process. They would have, you know, I, I imagine it would have really been a big hit. And that's how science unfortunately works. So be careful with speculation be careful with sweeping statements. Have a look at the scientific process and see are they supporting a valid scientific process with what they're saying. Let's go back to my squid work uh, and back to this whole publication science thing. When I was very young, I mentioned how God had blessed with my honors degree and I moved right on to a PhD. And my work at that time involved squid statolith aging. And statilis are little balanced bones that sit in the back of the squid head, tiny little, they're a couple millimeters long, and they're used to help when a squid swims, you know, it's yawing and, and movement and acceleration. The interesting thing, and it sort of has a neurological function, I wasn't interested in that. What I was interested in how this little bone grew. And when you take one of those little bones out and you section it and look at it under a microscope, it looks like a tree ring. It looks like a tree stump. It's got all these rings in it. I wish I could show you a picture. Maybe I'll put one on morning manna or something. And it's got all these little rings in it. And at that time, people had been doing a lot of research with larval fish and had shown in, in analogous structures called otoliths in fish and had showed that these rings were laid down daily. It was like a fascinating tool. And I got to thinking and a little bit of research had been done that was suggesting that these might be daily rings in squid. And if we could crack that, it's kind of like the Rosetta Stone. If we could crack that, that would reveal, it would essentially mean that a squid had a calendar in the back of its head telling us when you captured the squid and removed this, when it, when it hatched, 
how fast it grew and how old it was. And when you age a lot of squids in a population, you can learn things about when they mature, what their lifespan is, what's the form of their growth curve. I'll get off track. I'll get a little carried away with my old life here in a minute if I don't sort of pull myself up. But that, that was my life. I was, and, and I lived in North Queensland. And I had ac access to the ocean. There were a variety of species. I could go out with boats and collect specimens. I could bring them back live to the lab and conduct experiments. And what you could do is you could actually expose them to a, 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 an antibiotic, a fluorescent antibiotic called tetracycline, or, a, or a, a fluorescent dye called calcine. They soaked that up into their body, and it made a fluorescent mark on the statilis. Then you feed your squid, and you keep them growing, and you keep feeding them and growing them and the statolith grows, and then you sacrifice your squid at the end of the experiment, and you look at, at, at your data. And this is what happened. I did this on a number of species in tropical Australia, ran these experiments. I had a hypo My hypothesis was these rings are laid down daily based on kind of what's been going on with, with other structures and fish otolith work and so forth. And sure enough, I was able to gather evidence that showed that the one ring, one day hypothesis. I had experimental, I mean, I had access that probably nobody else in the world had. Squids that could be collected and maintained in our aquarium system at James Cook University. And the basis of my PhD work were conducting these experiments, uh, photographing them and analyzing this. And sure enough, the, the data supported the hypothesis. These things were laying down a ring every day they were actually accurate calendars, just like trees lay down a ring every year. And you can age a tree in years. You can age a squid in days. You know what that, you know what that, uh, what that research showed is that squids were really fast growing. Tropical squids were really fast growing. I, never I worked on a number of species, uh, you know, expanded my research, collaborated with other people. I haven't found any tropical squid that lives older than 200 days. 200 days, they complete their life cycle. I had research in Thailand, great big in the Gulf of Thailand, because they, they fished out the Gulf of Thailand. And there's not many big fish yet. And because squids are so fast growing, they've replaced the, the fish as the major predators in the ecosystem. And, uh, and so it's a fascinating ecological thing, because there's, th there's places in the world where cephalopods have taken over because they've removed the fish. And there's interesting things going on. And so I had this tool. Now, not everybody believed that. As I mentioned earlier, the Americans and the Canadians, they were really excited about this. The Australians weren't. I ended up at a conference in South Africa with a very prominent, very prominent fisheries biologist. It was a cephalopod conference. And he was kind of out of, out of his realm. High profile guy that, unfortunately, I had, well, for him, I had again reanalyzed, compared my results to what results he was getting based on length frequency analysis, an indirect measure of growth. And we're saying these squids were living five, six, seven years. And I'm saying, well, no, they're living 200 days. So two different sets of results. And I had to, and this guy wasn't happy about that, I found out. He was a scary individual. He was a really scary individual. Big French black guy, and I can remember his eyes bulging and shaking his finger at me, and I'm just kind of, whoa, you know, this guy's intense. He was really worked up. I actually can remember going to the restroom and praying because he was so intimidating. It was just, whoa, man, these bulging eyes. I can remember, you didn't know that. He was talking about something, and he's shaking his finger at me, and he was big. Anyway, a real high profile guy. And he stood out and basically discredited my research. I mean, he just did. He just didn't agree with it. 
In fact, subsequently he misquoted me and published things discrediting what I was doing, and he just didn't, he didn't understand what I was saying. He didn't understand the biology of the animal that I had worked for for years. And then I had the opportunity to, I, I, you know, I had the opportunity to then stand up in this discussion thing and refute what he said, and I had the weight of evidence on my side. So that made me realize, number one, you've got to be very careful how you interpret the data. You've got to know what you're talking about. And the controversies that are out there, if you're publishing something controversial, you may not get it published. Uh, if you've got supporters out there, you're okay. And uh, as I said, with this early uh, collaborative project, we could, have, we could have come up with a neat, uh, we could have really spun a story on the evolution of modern squid growth, you know, and they would have just eaten it up. So it's not always based on the science. And sometimes people don't accept the facts or they interpret things very differently. And that's, and that's fine. That's what science is all about. It's a it's, science is always dynamic. And that is a big part of what happens in evolution. Uh, there's a lot of uh, interpretation. I think of, of a text, Ecclesiastes 12.1, where it says, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. And you know, as you look at these texts, it fascinates me how often the creator is brought up and that God is the creator he created you, and it's just, it's just like jumping out at me all the time now. And because it's being questioned these days. I think of other scientific connections I had. I think of my supervisor, a brilliant biologist who was the head, came in as the head of our department. And if there was ever anybody who was like completely different to me, it would be him. I mean, he swore, he was crude, he was just... Uh, I mean, he had, a, he had a heart for students, and he really would, would spend time with students. Uh, but he was a worldly guy. I mean, just as drinking, the whole thing. And um, I can remember he wanted me to come to something on Saturday at open day, and I had to say, you know, I don't do that. Oh, yeah, he had forgotten. And, and again, during the course of my career, he knew what I did and what I didn't do. And... And despite the fact that we were too incredibly, I mean, he would just swear at you if he didn't like something you were doing. I mean, he really had to have a thick skin with this guy. I mean, he was, he was a tough guy. He was a good supervisor in other ways in terms of the science, but he was a, a crude, worldly person. And that was the, the sort of people I interacted with. That was my, my world. But years later, I can remember him saying, uh, I mean, but, but I was judged by my science and the rigor of what I did, not as who... He, you know, to him, I was just kind of a weird, religious, wacky nut, probably. I mean, I, I can only guess. But I can remember him saying years later that I, w I and another student were one of his two best students. So you can, you'll still have that respect. God will give you respect, uh, and you don't have to compromise. This is beyond my, comp this is down my postgraduate work. I didn't compromise anymore, and yet I, I was still able to work in the world and get the respect of others. I think of, the, I think of my long-term colleague who's now the chief scientist of the Census of Marine Life, the guy who I walked away from the $45 million. In fact, he's hinted lately, why don't you come back and, you know, get involved again? Uh, so, you know, uh, but I'm staying here. Um, but uh, a long-term colleague, you know, we, 
we, he, we stayed at each other's houses. We worked together on publications. We worked together at conferences. Again, he understood my faith. Uh, now, you know, like, you know, don't you hate it when people keep getting you mixed up? Oh, yeah, with Jehovah's Witnesses. And I mean, I face that all the time. Well, it's always they think I'm a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. Or they, in England once, I'm asking for a church. And they, uh, you know, I told them who I was. They told me where the church is. And I thought, Friday afternoon, I'm going to walk there. Sure enough, they sent me to a kingdom hall or something. You know, that's, that's, you know. That, you know, that, it just happens to me all the time. But people, if you honor God, people will respect who you are. And, and they'll see, in terms of the realm of science, that I had the respect as a scientist. Uh, he, he understood my faith and my diet and my Sabbath beliefs. And he understood that I didn't collaborate on evolution papers. I mean, I was quite open with him. And he put together a paper, and I think he sent me a draft. And, and he said, oh. You know, I, I should have included you on that. I said, no, no, that's okay. It's got too much evolution for me. Oh, oh yeah, no, I'm sorry. You know, that's okay. You know, he published it. And so he knew. And I was comfortable about doing that. And, you know, just recently he acted as a referee. I was, there was a job opening at an Adventist university. He wrote a referee for me. And this is what, he, he actually sent it. We're close call. And then he sent me what he said. <laughs> this is what he said. He said, George and I have published often together, but he prefers not to be in articles that discuss evolution. This has some effect on his publishing credentials, but he is content to deal with the balance. Like, well, praise God. If it means I've got a few less publications on my list, who cares? I'm not even publishing anymore. Well, I'm a little bit, but uh, the amazing thing is what you'll find is that things that were incredibly important to you you may find one day aren't as important, as important as you thought they were. I went back to Australia. Now, I don't know. I, got, I think I've published, I don't know, 85 papers or something in the scientific literature in collaborate. A lot of those are collaborative with other people. And, and that was, you know, to have that list of papers is great when you apply for jobs. I mean, it's just, it's great. That's what people want to see. And I got to the point of thinking, okay, so if I keep working hard and I work for the rest of my career, and I, maybe I'll get 150 publications eventually. And I had to ask myself the question, so what? <laughs> and I really thought, yeah, so what? So I published, you know, I work hard, I have a long career. Maybe I get a doctor of science or some esteemed thing. But so what? Then I die, and people can read my papers after I'm dead. Uh, and that's true. That's how it goes. And this whole Weimar thing came up. I turned my career around. I end up going back to Australia. Somebody comes and buys our house. It's unfinished. Somebody buys our house. And oh, man, that's a story. Uh, actually, I was at Weimar. I've just taken a side because it's a testimony. And I thought, God, how are we going to work? We had all these things with my wife's immigration. We had tax things we had to sort out. We had all these impossible hurdles. I mean, it's not easy to move countries. How we, Lord, how are we going to do this? Then the, there were people that were already interested in our house. It was a nice house in a nice spot overlooking the water. And you know, I still think of that place and thinking, you know, that was a nice place. <laughs> but you know, what's the, there wasn't anything there for my family. We needed to be, you know, they can't go to GYC way down in Tasmania. So uh, you know, we had to get our priorities right. The people came, and I, I finally said, I knew they were interested. And I, I contacted them. And they were within hours of putting an offer on another house. But they really want, I knew they wanted our house. And so they were wanting to do that. They get an assessor to look at our house. And they, they email it back to me, and the assessment was like way low. I thought, I can't sell the house. I thought, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. I didn't know what to do. I didn't call the people back. 
I'm here at Weimar, and we're looking at properties here. Actually, I live on campus, and we love it. We don't even want to live off campus. We have such a great time here. And we're looking at houses. We get this email here, and I think, what are we going to do? Way low offer. We can't, you know, we have a house in Australia. I've got this job. I'm changing my career. Considerable drop in pay. You know, what are we going to do? I sit out here. A special place on campus is Moses Rock. If you go walk down here, there's water coming out of the rock. And I sat there, and I prayed, and I started to cry. And I thought, you know missionaries have lost their kids doing things for God. They've lost their kids. They've buried their kids in the, or their spouses in the mission field or lost their own lives. And I'm thinking, you know, what am I giving to God? And so I remember crying and praying and saying, Lord, you're going to have to work this out. I'm just, I don't know how we can do this. We were dealing with three countries, Canada, Australia, and the U.S. You know, I'm convicted to come to Weimar. We've got this house, all of this. What, I don't know, Lord, what are we going to do? Within 48 hours, I get a call from the people. We go back to Canada. We were living in Canada on Vancouver Island. They call me back, and they said, you know, we sent an email. I said, yeah. I didn't even know what to say. I said, well, <clears throat> I guess it's time that we make an offer on your house. I'm going to make you a cash offer because I've got retirement funds set aside. It's all that we can afford. And uh, he gave me the price, and I'm thinking, wow. I said, whoa, whoa, that's way above what the assessment was on the house. That's a generous offer, I said. And uh, anyway, uh, to make a long story short, we, ex we made the decision to cut off our ties to Australia and sell our beloved house. And the reason why I'm telling this story, and they bought the house, and it all worked out, oh, two weeks later, the economy crashed. Two weeks later, the economy crashed. I mean, it was just an incredible chain of events. I go back to Australia, and I got to clean up the house and get rid of stuff. I mean, there are boxes of baby clothes. You just, you know, I think a lifetime of stuff. What a job. I'm in my study. And in my study, I have my publications. You know, I, they get you reprints of the publications. I got multiple reprints of the publication. Stuff that was so important to me. That was my life. That was, these publications were the door to my career. You know what I did? I started throwing them away. I can't, be I can't believe I ever did that. I started, I I'm going to send all this back to Cal. Stuff is still sitting in our garage that we've packed from Australia. Uh, and so I'm getting these. I think, well, okay, I'll keep one or two, and I'll toss the rest away. And then I kind of got on a roll, and I started throwing. I ended up with a pile. Stuff I'm throwing away with my name on it. You're like, my publications. I just threw them away. And it actually felt good. I mean, I would have never, as a young scientist, would ever imagine taking things that I wrote my precious reprints and throwing them away. And I did. And I don't even care anymore. So, you know, God will change your perspective. Uh, and that's kind of the science thing for me, because it, it, it just made me think that what's really important to you now might not be in a few years' time. And the Bible tells us, you know, there's going to be a time when people take their money and throw it away. They don't want it anymore. It's too late. And it's too late. They've held on to their money too long. You know, Don McIntosh here at Weimar, when we had the economic crash, told the story at one of our meetings where he went and visited a potential donor. He said, I still remember the guy looking at me with his white eyeballs and exclaiming to him how much money he had lost in the financial crash and exclaiming how he could have used that money for God's work. You know, isn't that amazing? I mean, I'm getting off track. But... Uh, Let's go back and look a little bit more about, back to the University of Babylon, the International University of the Chaldees with Daniel and his three friends. 
because we're told in Daniel 1, 3 and 4, this is what it says. So, so Daniel gets captured. And it said, the king spoke unto Aspenan, the master of the eunuchs. I'm reading chapter, verse 3 of chapter 1. That he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. Children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science. And such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace. And whom they might teach the learning and tongue of the Chaldeans. It was a political ploy. Get the people, train them, indoctrinate them, and build up. He was a wise... Politically, Nebuchadnezzar was quite switched on to what to do to get people on side. And it says there, um, so they get them and they start training Daniel, a whole group of young boys. And think, man, here we were going to be prisoners and we're just giving a scholarship to the university and we eat at the king's table. Prophets and Kings 479 says, among the children of Israel who were carried captive to Babylon, at the beginning of the 70 years captivity were Christian patriots, patriots, men who were as true to steel, true as steel to principle, who would not be corrupted by selfishness, but who would honor God at the loss of all things. In the land of their captivity, these men were to carry out God's purpose by giving to heathen nations the blessing that came through a knowledge of Jehovah. That's what God wants us to do. We're going to go out into the world, you go out into these idolatrous nations, and you shed the light. And they come to know the gospel. They were to be his representatives. Never were they to compromise with idolaters. Their faith and their name as worshipers of the living God, they were to bear as a high honor. And this they did. In prosperity and adversity, they honored God, and God honored them. She's quoting that, which I quoted before. Never were they to compromise with idolaters. You know why we're having this conference today? Why we're having this theme? is there's a whole bunch of people in our church who have compromised with idolaters. That's what's happened. They've compromised with idolatry. They've given in to Darwinian evolutionary thoughts. And that's why, as a Seventh-day Adventist church, we're having a young people's meeting that we're emphasizing creation. I mean, you think that should be just part of the package, you know? Why should we even be having to talk about this? I mean, it's good to reemphasize truth, but we're doing it because people are tearing it down. What a strange time we live in, isn't it? You, as young people, are going to carry the Reformation forward. So as dark as the darkness might be, you'll carry that light forward and work the Reformation along with our General Conference Vice President. I got to sit in that stadium and see the excitement flow through almost 70,000 people as he re-endorsed what our basic Adventism 101 beliefs are. I turned to to our school principals sitting next to us saying, we're making history here. We're potentially on the verge of a great re reformation. I can see, we can see God moving amongst his people. You know, all this darkness is going on and, and nonsense and people are toying with Darwinism. You know, I guess a little bit of persecution will clean all that up real quick. I mean, you know, and, and the church will be purified. You as committed young people will carry that light forward despite the darkness that's out there and it will triumph. So, don't be, don't, be, don't be deceived with the subtleties of evolution. One of, the, one of our other Adventist institutions, I, I was speaking to one of the lecturers, and he put it a good way, it's like bait and switch. You, when you, going back to this whole evolution thing, when you look at in, in textbooks, when I teach, textbooks, they use all sorts of examples from the animal kingdom, you know, the finches on Darwin's island, you know, Galapagos, and they look at adaptation, and even speciation, 
you know, you got lots of different finches or, you know, all these closely related squids that are separated behaviorally or spatially and they develop into different species. That's fine. And, and they look at that and the words you should use are probably adaptation, speciation, or variability. And they talk about that and they start talking about evolution. I mean, it's not evolution. It's, in fact, you can observe that and undertake scientific studies on how things change and maybe even get new species that are still a bird or a squid, but they get separated genetically and develop traits that are unique. That's speciation or adaptation. And they'll use those examples and then they'll start talking about evolution. So it's kind of a bait and switch. You think, wait a minute, that, that's not evolution. So be careful. Look at the words they use. When you see evolution in a textbook, many times they're just ecological. It should be using other terms that have nothing to do with evolution. Don't be deceived. It says in Prophets and Kings, and I've got a number of quotes from that chapter about Daniel 44, 45. The Lord regarded with approval the firmness and self-denial of the Hebrew youth, Hebrew youth and their purity of motive and his blessings attended them. He gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom and Daniel had understandings and all visions and dreams. And she says, the promise was fulfilled. Them that honor me, I will honor. First Samuel 2.30, that is a promise. It's lived out in my life. I've witnessed it many times. Like God, it, you ever feel you know, like trying to dump uh, wheat in a cup and it's kind of spilling out? He, he, it just overflows. He, he's not, God isn't content with just to give you a little bit of blessing. He's like, I don't deserve this, you know? And, and the blessings are poured out. And, and when you stand up for God, it's, it's, he just blesses. Says Daniel, again reading on 486, Daniel and his companions were far more successful than their fellow students. But their learning did not come by chance. You want to be a good student? You're looking for that MCAT down the road? You got to set if you want to be a med student? Or what is it if you're dentistry? DAT? This is, this is all stuff that's relevant to our students. They're all thinking MCAT. How do you do it? They obtained their knowledge by the faithful use of their powers under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They placed themselves in connection with the source of all wisdom, making the knowledge of God the foundation of their education. In faith, they prayed for wisdom, and they lived their prayers. So they prayed for wisdom, they lived their prayers. They placed themselves where God could bless them. They avoided that which would weaken their powers and improved every opportunity to become intelligent in all lines of learning. You know, little things are important. You know, eating bad, drinking coffee, all these little things that are kind of creeping in, they tear down your resolve where God can bless you to really do great things. So the little things are important. They followed the rules of life that could not fail to give them strength of intellect. They sought to acquire knowledge for one purpose, that they might honor God. They realized that in order to stand as representatives of true religion amid the, amongst, amid the false religions of heathenism, they must have clearness of intellect and must perfect a Christian character. And God himself was their teacher. That's just like Adam and Eve. We read about that early, didn't we? Constantly praying. Listen to this. Okay, constantly praying, conscientiously studying, keeping in touch with the unseen. They walked with God as did Enoch. Isn't that amazing? So they're in the middle of Babylon, surrounded by a corrupt, idolatrous nation in a university where they're taught probably spiritualism, mysticism, and all sorts of new age wacky stuff, evolution, the whole works, and they're like Enoch. They're walking with God. And God makes them an order of magnitude better 
than those around them. But we're told on 487 that as the Lord cooperated with Daniel and his fellows, excuse me, trying to keep my voice going, uh, so will he cooperate with all who strive to do his will. He can do it today for us. And by the impartation of his spirit, he will strengthen every true purpose, every noble resolution. Those who walk in the path of obedience will encounter many hindrances. It's not going to be easy. I'm telling you that right now. It's not going to be a walk in the park. Strong, sub subtle influences may bind them to the world. But the Lord is able to render futile every agency that works for the defeat of his chosen ones. In his strength, listen to this, they may overcome every temptation, conquer every difficulty. Nothing's too hard for God. I mean, isn't it just amazing how she says it? I mean, I just, it amazes me that spirit of prophecy has been a huge blessing in my life. 47, 48, as God called Daniel to witness for him in Babylon, so he calls us to be his witnesses in the world today. That's what we're meant to do. At Weimar, we do evangelism. Evangelism is infused through everything we do. We talked, someone was talking to me about the modern day school of the prophets where we do work ed, where we have academic excellence, where we focus on health, but through all of that is infused evangelism, reaching out to the world. That's why we're here. And that's why I turned down a job at another university recently. They were working hard rolling out the red carpet. I was impressed with the, with the, there were faithful people in that department. But the thing that finally struck me is it didn't have the mission that we have here. I'd be a teacher in a department. Sure, I can work with Christian kids, and I love working with Christian kids, but when you have 94 of them, you know, what can you do? Here we have a small school, and it's not just a school. It, it's a movement. It's a movement. It's an evangelistic movement, and uh, frankly, I'm excited. I don't, you know, I'll keep throwing away publications if I have to, because what, what we're doing here now has the eternal consequences are far higher, far greater than, I never did get a publication. No, I'm, a, I'm an author on a submission to a publication in science. You know, people, science and nature, the ones right at the top. I never did quite get into those, although I am a, an author on a, on, a, uh, on a submission. So who knows, who cares? I mean, who cares? Um, she says that many are, are waiting for some great work to be brought to them while daily they lose opportunities for revealing faithfulness to God. So she's saying there, there are no non-essentials. And she actually says we'll be judged by what we ought to have done but did not accomplish because we did not use our powers to glorify God. So you can't just be in med school thinking I'm going to be a great doctor and I'm going to drive a Mercedes and I'm going to be a brain surgeon because if you're doing it for that reason, you're doing it for the wrong reason. Now, be a brain surgeon if God gives you the ability and do it. But do it so you can pray with your patients, saying, look, you may not live through this operation. I want to commit your soul to God. And is there anything you want to share in your life before we go into this operation? Imagine the impact that would have. Can you imagine that? God, the reason why we're here, the reason why Neil Nedley is here is because he can't find enough doctors that are lifestyle like-minded to work with. And so we're setting up an institution. One aspect of this institution is to train people who want to go into the medical and health fields with uh, natural remedies and spirit of prophecy principles because once you get into med school, you're too busy. Now is the time you've got to do it. We can learn these things. You can learn these things now. And we've got wonderful people like Dr. DeRose and other people that can train 
uh, in, in these simple natural remedy principles. So when you go in and do your medical training, you will have that so you can go out and be a medical missionary for God. On Prophets and Kings 489 says the Hebrew worthies were like men of like passions with ourselves, yet notwithstanding the seductive influences of the court of Babylon, they stood firm because they depended upon a strength that is infinite. In them, in them, a heathen nation beheld an illustration of the goodness and beneficence of God and the love of Christ. And in their experience, we have an instance of the triumph of principle over temptation, of purity over depravity, of devotion and loyalty over atheism and idolatry. And that doesn't sound like today with students, and I know we have the campus network and Dr. Pippin, and we have students in secular campuses, and they can do a good work, but you got to, don't try to do it alone, do it with somebody so you can strengthen each other. And we're told in 49 490 of Prophets and Kings, again, the spirit that possessed Daniel, the youth of today may have. Do you want to be like Daniel? Do you want to have, be infused with, with Jesus like Daniel was? They may draw from the same source of strength, possess the same power of self-control, and reveal the, same, reveal the same grace in their lives, even under circumstances as unfavorable. You might be in a tough department where you've got horrible people teaching you bad things. Uh, you can still do it. Yet by divine grace, their purpose to honor God may remain firm. This is talking about us today. Through strong resolution and vigilant watchfulness, they may withstand every temptation that assails the soul. But only by him who determines to do right, because it is right, will the victory be gained. Be determined. Now, that's being purposed. Be purposed in your heart to do it regardless of the cost. And then what was the end of the story with these guys? Thinking of these Hebrews, looking a little bit more specific about their situation. And you know, the parallel with Daniel is so, so relevant to us today. You know, we are, in, in my next talk, I'll be talking about how Paul faced the Epicureans and the Stoics. He was dealing with exactly the same issues back then that we face today. Basic atheistic evolution. It's amazing. Nothing, human behavior is the same throughout generations. Greed, idolatry, it's all the same. This is, this is what, when you think of that professional career you might want to have, think about what these, now, there were a lot of young guys in the class with them. You know, probably it was a big class. We hear nothing about them. You know, once they started feasting on the pork, I can imagine, I have a good imagination. Can't you just imagine going to the banquet and there's the platter with the lobster and the pig with the apple in its mouth and the seafood platter and all that weird fried snake or whatever. I can just imagine it all thinking, you know. And they, all the rest ate it. And they drank the wine and clouded their minds and they never even appeared in history. 490 Prophets of Kings in closing. What a life work was that of those noble Hebrews. As they bade farewell to their child and home, little did they dream what a high destiny was to be theirs. Faithful and steadfast, they yielded to the divide, divine guiding so that through them, God could fulfill his message. Through them, God could fulfill his purpose. The same mighty truths that were revealed through these men, God desires to reveal through the youth and children today. He's talking to young people. She's talking to young people. The life of Daniel and his fellows is a demonstration of what he will do for those who yield themselves to him with the whole heart, 
seek to accomplish his purpose. So, it's all about where your loyalty is. As we read at the end of the closing the last time, God wants you, you know, you may want to be a legislator. You may want to be a judge. You may want to even be a politician. I mean, it's hard to imagine, but maybe, you know, be the first honest politician maybe. I don't know. Uh, you can do all that. You can, you can do these great things, and God wants to do great things through each one of us. Just remember Christian integrity and to walk like Enoch did. And, and it's amazing. When you go through those quotes about Daniel, it's amazing how again and again she keeps bringing it back to today. You can do just what he did. Just tap into, tap into the source of power that they tapped in. Be the light amongst idolatry that they are. When you face these things, just hit it head on and don't waver. Again and again, it's a pattern. Read it again and again. Prophets and kings, patriarchs and prophets, some of those great stories. So God bless you as you face these challenges that are incredible as young people doing education today. And uh, in our next afternoon meeting, we'll go back to Paul and we'll look at the pillar of creationism right through the Bible and how important it really is. Let's just stand for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, it is indeed a privilege uh, to serve you. But as we look at it, sometimes we feel the standard is incredibly high and we just don't feel we're there. But we know that you can empower us to do all that you ask us to. Every temptation, everything that needs to be overcome, you can empower us. So, Lord, we pray that you will empower us that will put away these things of the world that so terribly ensnare us sometimes. Sometimes we're even attracted to the things of the world and the plethora of video games and entertainment and movies and all the things that distract us today. May we not be tempted by those and may we see through those entrappings of Satan and move forward. We look at the story of Daniel and his friends and how they were just normal people like us, but they were powerful because they were connected with you. They had wisdom because they were connected with the, whole, with the source of all wisdom. They overcame idolatry because they were infused with your truth. So we pray that you'll do that to each one of us here. Each one of us face different challenges, maybe in school, maybe from family members, maybe they're suffering. There might be people here that are doubting. May you infuse us with your truth so we can be inspired and ennobled and emboldened to stand for truth in a humble, Christ-like way. Bless us and keep us, and may we do your work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.